Hello everyone, I am Stephen Drew from the Architecture Social. You know all who I am, but to guess what? That's what's good about this show. We get awesome guests from the industry. And I've met this guest before, actually, at the Architects Benevolent Society and admired what they do from afar on Twitter, in the scope, in the architectural world. So I'm thrilled to be joined here by an awesome guest, Samita Singer. How are you today, Samita? Are you okay? I'm good. Thank you so much. And I'm sorry for coughing when you were trying to introduce me. No problem at all. No problem at all. Well, I appreciate and you making the time to be here. And I think that we've had a lot in common, actually, as well, because I know you've done a lot for international students, and we'll get onto that in a bit. But Samita, for anyone that's not familiar with the work that you've done in architecture, can you give us a little bit about yourself? Uh Okay, so uh, talking about international students, I actually didn't study in the UK, so I studied in India, and I came wow. here, and I, on a scholarship, to Cambridge, and I studied environmental design, and that led me to practice sustainable design from 30 years ago when nobody was talking Francis. And I've been teaching about sustainability and technology for roughly about the same time. I'm designing stuff uh, which is ethical and sustainable and writing about it. Brilliant. Well, that makes it, that's really, really useful. And actually, it's quite a poignant time, especially in architecture. We're talking about sustainability as we should be. And, and I appreciate all you've done there. And going back to it as well, because Architecture Social, there's a lot of students who are currently looking for jobs in the UK. And we've just gone through Brexit. And now we're kind of going through a cost of living crisis as well. And I think that uh, international students in particular, I did a podcast uh, recently, which was well received, talking about the struggle, the uphill battle sometimes that a very qualified architect, international architect, can get in the UK. You know, and as well as that, we, me and you have talked about as well, the ongoing struggles that international students have with uh, university fees. And as you say, then get the barriers getting into industry. So I think it's awesome to have someone like yourself who's kind of done the journey or what, what would be your thoughts right now to any students perhaps in the current in 2022 uh, uh, are you do you have any thoughts on currently the climate the economic climate at the moment for young architectural professionals certainly i mean first of all i have to say that things are very different uh now 30 years ago when I came to this country, yeah. um, I had got a scholarship because we were very poor. Mm. There was no way, no way I could have even gone through um, architecture because we lived in one room and I had to sleep on the table. Wow. So there were three, um, three daughters, my dad, who was a school teacher in a government school, and my mom used to shop around for the cheapest 
food, you know, she used to go when it got dark so she could buy all the things they were literally throwing away. And um, so in those circumstances, for me to get stuck, like, you know, drawing pens, I didn't have drawing pens until I think I was in my second mm. year. I was drawing everything using pencil. So right. When I came to this country, you know, everyone looked rich to me. <laughs> but, um, you know, it, and especially, <laughs> especially in Cambridge, you know, it was, uh, I was just surrounded by really posh people. So coming from that environment, you know, it wasn't uh, nice. You know, I just felt really out of place. And today, a lot of, I think, middle-class um, overseas students come here. Uh, they probably might not be in the sort of dire circumstances that I was those years ago. Um, but the mm. problem is fees have increased. So my fees, for example, uh, were very low yeah. and I had the scholarship. My living costs were also low. But those have all gone up proportionately really high now. So people from, um, you know, overseas students are really suffering. And because I teach in the UK and in Italy, I have found that students travel from one place to the other to find the cheapest place to study and live. So somebody might, I, I've met somebody who's done their part one in Manchester. Then she's gone to Germany and done something else. Mm. And now she's in Italy doing something else. So students are sort of migrating, international students, and British students are also doing the same. So I have students from Russia, from um, um, South America, from Europe, from Asia, just Africa as well, which is great. And so everyone is really struggling because of, as you mentioned, you know, cost of living crisis, fees going up. But some of the European countries don't charge fees for architecture. So the UK does. So they mm. migrate and, and go to countries where uh, they will uh, have free or, or cheaper um, these, you know, they pay less fees. Yeah. Yeah. Makes complete sense. And I guess we share um, humble backgrounds as well, because I wasn't quite sleeping on the kitchen table. And I think that's, that's a journey, but like yourself, I come from humble roots in, in Wales and my parents basically saved up every penny to support me while I was studying architecture and I had to work a part-time job. And you're right. I was lucky because uh, or at the time, I felt unlucky, actually, because I was the year just when they put their, uh, the fees up from 1000 to 3000 I was like, damn, I missed it. But compared to what students pay at the moment, which is £9,000 for domestic students, and uh, goodness me, I'm not even sure what international students pay in now, but it's it's well above 10, I think it's like ten to 20000 or something crazy um, per year to, to study. And the other thing is as well, architecture education. Now, I love doing my part one and part two. And even though I don't practice architecture anymore, I still love design. I think all the skills are transferable 
it's an amazing course. That's my opinion. It is five years though, isn't it? As well as working in industry and then getting into the industry can be up to seven to eight years. And what I worry with at the moment is, as you said, if we've got inter uh, if we've got international and domestic costs to study architecture, and then as you said, you you know likely you're going to be renting an apartment, paying for um, food and supplies and all that. The reality is you could rack up seventy thousand plus in in debt at the moment, and then you exit. Um, university, you have to look for a job. And then fortunately, the salaries are not quite in line with that. I mean, it's amazing because architects, you get to design buildings, but it's a high price to pay, isn't it, for that passion of architecture, especially if you've got student debt at the moment. So I was just kind of wondering your thoughts on that. Do you feel that maybe the course is, is it's quite long at the moment, or do you think that we need to start having conversations about different forms of architecture education like the apprentice scheme seems like a really awesome way to me to learn on the go i would love your thoughts on on that and where you see it all going yeah so when i studied in india i did i was in a riba validated school but uh, my apprenticeship or in route was actually not even a year it was six months so I did four and a half years, and then I, off of pure study, I did six mm -hmm. months of uh, working for a practice. Actually, I worked for a conservation uh, body, and that was considered enough. And I'm thinking, how come in the UK, you've got this situation where you do three years, you're out, yeah. two years, then you're out, and then... So you're extending the course really for nine years and all the time your expenses are racking up because you're able mm. to earn money, right? And um, so in Italy where I teach yeah. the same yeah. system, they have five years of education, they sit an exam and then they are registered as architects. So, I mean, the, the, the thing here is the elite right. that... Um, if you are working through your education, you're somehow learning, right? But the whole problem is that if you're being exploited and if you're drawing yep. windows for one year, you're not really getting the education you need, practical education yeah. you need. So I think, uh, mm. you know, I'm the board trustee, RIBA board trustee for education. I'd like to see this explored in more depth and seeing, you know, is this working for students? I mean, ultimately, I have to kind of think, is this working for students or not? You know, if it's not working, then you have to find something mm. else. Well, yeah, I'm I think sorry. I, I'm an external examiner for a university where most students come from a lower socioeconomic background. And I went to review their work, really excellent work, and the students were lovely, amazing people. But they struggled mm. through the COVID because they don't have laptops. They were sort of, some of them were in a similar situation to how I was in India, mm. living in one room, um, and, and they didn't have access to Wi-Fi. 
So they really suffered. And in one of their courses, the dropout was 50%, you know, uh, so uh, because that required them to do stuff on, on the laptops, which they didn't have. And then now they've got grants to buy laptops. But, um, you know, this situation is still happening where there is digital poverty, economic poverty and social poverty. And we need to do something for students to, you know, I mean, architecture is not a middle, middle class profession and shouldn't be, you know, it should be for everyone. If it's for everyone, then how can we mm. enable everyone to study it? Mm. Well said. I think, I think that's, um, I'm glad that we have people who, you know, share those thoughts. Uh, I think common sense, but also I think it's really important. And that's why my, with yourself being on the RBA Board of Education, we need to have these conversations because there's a lot of awesome stuff that happens there. But as you said, the times are constantly moving and we need to constantly be, I guess, a, a, evolve and agile. You touched upon one or two really interesting bits here. And I'm, what I'm really keen to talk about as well as gamer myself. When I, when I, when I came into architecture 10 years ago, you know, they were, I, I felt like some people made a lot of effort, but at the time as well, I wasn't quite sure in the office who was quite open about these situations. And I'm glad in 2022, we can talk about this stuff, but I know that as well as that you founded Architects for Change and uh, in particular the Equality Forum at the RABA, which I think is really, really important. And I want to, you know, do a little clap then. Sorry, I haven't got my soundboard, but I'll do a real clap because equality inclusivity is, is so important. And I would just love to hear your thoughts on that now at the moment, especially in 2022. So the time of recording this is probably what is, is June, July, 2022. So, I mean, where do you see the industry going now since especially you getting involved in it? Has it been a big change and do you think we're going in the right direction? But do you also feel like there's a lot of work then, Samita, that we need to do as an industry as well to keep pushing in that direction? Yeah, so 26th of July will be uh, 22 years since Architects for Change was founded. It's interesting to see. Yeah, it'll be 22 years. And it'll be interesting to see if things have improved. If you look at the statistics, for example, I was chair of women in architecture in 1999, and there were 8% women. At the moment, there are 30% women. Yeah. So, and, yeah. and also last year, uh, there was something like 50 to 60% women that entered into architectural education in 2021. So we're seeing more women going in. And consequently, I think uh, the percentage will rise um, faster than it has in the last few years. So that's a good thing. Uh, when I was chair, um, one of the things I did was to have a person for LGBTQ. Uh, you know, that time when nobody was really talking about this issue in architecture. So we had had people there to represent um, that side of the things as well. We've had black architects representation. Uh, we've had disabled uh, people on that committee. I'm, I'm not sure what's happening now because obviously I'm not chair anymore. 
But that was the whole point that people who are not represented widely mm. are represented through that group and, and voice their concerns um, and other issues through that group. So um, as regarding, you know, um, I think that the percentage of uh, minority ethnic architects has gone up a little bit. Um, but there you have the intersectionality. So if you are, say, if you're black, disabled, um, and a woman, then it's very little chance that you actually, you know, there might be one person like that. But why, why should it be like that? You know, architecture should be an inclusive um, profession. People, no matter what their situation is, should be able to study. I've seen schools of architecture and I go there and says, how is the wheelchair going to go? Mm. Oh, we don't have any disabled students. That's the response I get. But I'm then saying, but what if you did have, what are you going to do? You don't mm -hmm. have any facilities for disabled students. Um, the course I'm teaching in Italy, uh, it's called Women in Architecture. And we, the, the, the whole campus, we analyzed the whole campus, which was designed by men for men with no intention that women would actually one day be working and studying in it. So we've analyzed little details like where the toilets are, how secure they are, mm. um, et cetera. And we found it was astounding that women weren't even thought, thought about in the design. And it's not a, it was designed in the 70s, this particular building we've studied. So now we're putting forward a manifesto and then design interventions for that campus. But, you know, so the, the thing, what I'm saying is that to move from um, actually getting the stats and then moving on to actually doing something does take time. You know, some of my, most of my students are in their twenties and they had been studying on that campus, Italian campus for five years, and none of them had noticed anything wrong with it. We get used to it, right? Mm. And then when I started exploring and saying, well, do you, this is right, this is not yeah. right. Then they said, oh, okay, this is not actually right. You know, it's not right. Let's do something about it. But before that, they weren't even aware. So the awareness comes from actually saying to people, well, what's wrong? Let's do something about it. Yeah, well said. I, I remember as well that um, during my part one, and I enjoyed my part one and part two. And my, part two was really good because I went to Manchester and they were really good fun out there. And, but where I remember doing my part one, especially first year part one, you know what it's like? You've got a lot of people who I guess, quote unquote, don't make it. And I remember one incident and it kind of stuck with me where you had a deaf architect, um, an architectural student in the making, you know, architecture should be open to all. And they did have some support, but it wasn't quite there as in there would be some uh, support that would come with this deaf student to the lectures and, and try to translate, but it wasn't quite enough. Like it's very hard to hear talk about architecture seminars secondhand from someone who's not architecturally trained writing notes. And I remember that as a kind of example of, uh, good intentions, but not quite getting there. And and again, in essence, that person, I think they dropped out five to six months in, probably because of the demands of the course were quite tricky. 
But you're right. It wasn't, you wouldn't obviously think of that, but I haven't witnessed it. I remember thinking to me of, wow, this course is incredibly inaccessible for someone who is deaf, you know? Absolutely. I, one of my employees, she was deaf. Yeah. And what happened was she first applied to me and I am a right. practice and I thought, well, I can't really support her that well. So I encouraged her to apply to a much larger practice, which was nearby. Mm. And she applied to them, didn't get through. And, and I kept meeting her on the street and I'd say to her, have you, have you got a job? And she'd say, no. Then in the end, I thought this is ridiculous. You know, let's, let me take her in. And uh, fortunately at that point, my workload increased so she could, yeah. um, I could support her, pay her. But the thing I discovered about architecture is that it is not so much visual yeah. as, um, I don't know what the word is. Is it oral or oral, you know, auditory? Yeah. So okay. she couldn't, yeah. op- I mean, there were practical things like she couldn't open mm. the door if there were visitors. She couldn't answer the telephone. Uh, when I took her on to site meetings, um, she, she, um, she lip read. So I had to position people in such a way that she could see all our mouths. And it was, it was quite difficult to do for a small practice to have her. Right. But um, she stayed on for five years until actually she moved from the area. And and she offered to stay on, but I didn't want her cycling through London to be. She had gone to North London. She would have cycled to West London where I am. And I said, uh, no, but we've remained friends and I've supported her. But again, the same problem is there. She didn't go beyond part two. She's an extremely talented, amazing individual, but she works for a large practice now. But she works in their sort of uh, graphics department. She doesn't work as an architect. And I've always sort of had lunch with her and and said, you know, why don't you try? I had a word with her boss to see, you know, if she could do her part three. It's incredibly difficult if you're disabled. Yeah. 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 Well said. I am. I think we're getting there, but as you say, there's a lot of work to be done and you touched upon as well. And that's a staggering fact of eight people when you, when you came into architecture, it was like eight to 12% female, which is completely mad. And I'm, I'm glad that's going in the right direction. I remember a few years ago, remember it came out on the gender pay gap and that kind of blew people's minds. And I, I guess one of the things that I see, especially in recruitment, is the people that fall behind the gaps. And obviously the, um, the gender pay gap is awful. I'm glad we're starting to talk about that. It still needs to be had a lot of conversations on that. And the pandemic is awful. But one of the blessings of the situation of the pandemic, because the actual virus Awful. What's interesting though before, because another inaccessible thing I think of architecture, and it's amazing that you took someone on for five years, you taught them, and and and, and I, I admire that with a with a physical disability, and because we can all get past that. But what's interesting as well is um, parents, in particular mothers. I always found that having a child in architecture had caused this massive 
Um, it could really disrupt um, an amazing female architect's career. And it wasn't talked about a lot. It was very hard to return to from maternity. As sometimes architectural practices were kind of questioning what was going on when we all know, you know, you got to take a bit of time out and have a kid. It's a special moment at normal. And as well as that, the inflexibility, Samita, on, for instance, picking up kids in the morning, then to do the work. And it was very, very difficult in that you have to be there nine to six and work in long hours culture. And the one blessing I think from the pandemic is now we're kind of getting used to working flexi remote. We're, we're, we're I think employees are having to change the way they view the relationship of managing employees and, and being flexible in these situations. And then on the upside, the ones who actually embrace people, give them flexibility, uh, hire kick-ass mothers returning from work. You get the most amazing talent out there. But I would love your thoughts on on that scenario of mothers returning to work. Did you find before similar to what I'm talking about? And are you seeing things going the right direction now? I think the situation with uh, women uh, accessing childcare is mm. uh, still difficult because most architects are small practices. They can't have, afford to have nurseries. And an architectural pay isn't that good that you can actually drop your child mm. to a nursery and then work. So there's that, the, the, the low pay, the lack of facilities for childcare is um, missing. The other thing that's missing is, okay, you've decided you're going to look after your child, mm. but you want to come back to architecture after they go to school. Um, there is no women's returners course anymore. There used to be one. Mm. So that's missing. And what we also need, as you've mentioned, is flexible working. I mean, with my two, uh, when they were little, I used to take them in the buggy. And, um, they played happily on the site. I mean, there was no health and safety in those days. They would, um, you know, they'd run up on sites, really. And, uh, you know, both of them are very architectural minded now as adults, but, um, yeah, I just, I just had to do, do, do it. And, um, I don't think that situation has, um, actually improved. Um, it, I hear of, uh, the situation in Scandinavia, which is right. much better for women. And apparently the best place for women, women architects to work in is Vietnam. I didn't think of that, but according to some kind of world survey, it's, um, mm. it's a good place for well. women to work. I, I don't know why, but uh, maybe they have more childcare facilities. Maybe the uh, social structure is such that they have like, uh, you know, like the joint family system where the woman can leave her child with the family and go off to work and um, so on and so forth. But Whereas we, if we look at the Western world, and particularly UK, I don't think we have improved that much. I'm sorry to say that. Mm, very good. Well, this is what it's about, isn't it? Fleshing out these topics. And, and that is an interesting perspective and well-informed. And it's kind of a bit of a shame. I think that we, we need, do need to push into that area. On that note, it's quite interesting that I especially work with a lot of architecture practices in terms of hiring and there's a skill shortage at the moment currently where 
while we were recording this. And I heard through the grapevine of a company that's tempted to go back to telling the employees to come in five days a week. And I was just thinking, you can't do that right now, especially when we're starting to get used to, I think the new norm is probably three days in the office remote and working um, three days in the office physically, two days remote. But I think it should be the person's choice. If they want to come in five days, that's up to them. But you, enforcing people to do that and kind of going back on the inflexibility, it's like the one lesson we've learned for the pandemic and then we're going back to it. And I just wonder, I don't know where that thing is. It's like, yeah, there's like a nervousness in architecture before the pandemic of, if you're not in the office, what are you doing? And I remember before the pandemic of speaking to one or two architecture practices before, and the directors would be like, no chance can we work remote, not at all. And I remember I would send people, uh, introduce people to companies who maybe wanted that flexibility or wanted to work at home, and it was a complete no-go. But now it's starting to be embraced. I mean, do you have any thoughts on um, good practices that you've seen from architecture companies that are inspiring at the moment, Samita? Is there anything you've seen or heard of which you think is good that we should all take lessons from? There are a couple of actually small practices that have embraced the four-day week, uh, three-day week, etc. Um, so I, you know, you think if mm. small practice can do that, larger practice can obviously do that. But um, I think yeah. everyone needs to do it because, you know, the, the COVID pandemic actually had some really positive things as well. The fact that, you know, I think people's work-life balance improved in some ways. They could spend time with their families and they were still very productive. So obviously there, there is need for us to come on site. There's need for us to have meetings. Architecture is a, you know, very interactive profession, but let's do it. You know, we don't have to do it all the time. Let's do it differently. Mm. So let's say a mom, she wants to drop her kid to school, then come into work. Say she does like whatever, five hours or three hours. And then she yep. goes back, picks her kid from school. And then, you know, does the rest of the day from home, which means she doesn't have to pay the childcare nursery costs, which I had to pay yep. my kids. Um, and, and, you know, everybody's happy. The kid's happy, the mom's happy, the employers are happy. So I think we need to start thinking flexibly and we haven't been thinking that. And also in terms of studying, as I mentioned, you know, my students in this Italian course come from everywhere. And because we had a system of online teaching as well, and also all my, uh, all my lectures were recorded so that students can listen to them later. So there's, all, there's a system attending students and non-attending students. And both attending and non-attending can listen to my lectures, which are recorded and then um, on, on a shared system. So that way, nobody missed out. And so I had students, for example, from Azerbaijan or somewhere else, you know, listening in who could do the exercise I had asked them to do where they were based. 
and then come back and ask me questions online. Um, I had students in Amsterdam at the same time. So it was a way of teaching and working that I thought, well, this is great. And the students were very complimentary about it because, you know, it worked for, for them, whether they were there face to face, even I wasn't uh, available face to face because I couldn't stay in Italy for all that time. So I was doing some of the lectures online and some of them on site. Um, but this kind of flexibility allowed me and the students to actually get the best from the lecture series that I was doing. Amazing. I think uh, it's very interesting and I'm glad that we're all overcoming and, 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 and learning. And so, you know, equality, inclusivity, really, really important. Um, what I'd love to talk, learn a little bit about you from, if it's cool, while I have you here for a moment, is that sustainability, going towards more ecological architecture, you know, being in, in, mindful of the environment. Now, I talk a lot about employment on this channel because I, that's what I tend to do. And I would love someone like yourself who's well-informed. I would love to hear your thoughts on, A, what you're passionate about at the moment and what and what is maybe current pressing issues, but maybe as well you can impart a little bit of wisdom on, on my podcast in terms of your thoughts about the direction, the sustainability, because I know you are in the Sustainable Development Commission. So any of your thoughts or advice for anyone listening about what we should be thinking of now in 2022. Okay, so my passion recently has become actually materials. So imagine we're on this little piece of rock that is called the planet. Right. And we're like little ants who've been sort of excavate materials using them up at a faster mm -hmm. rate that we can recycle or reuse. So in 2017, we took out something like 100 billion um, tons of materials from the earth. So that included sand, gravel, clay, etc., which are essential building components. And of all the 100 billion that we took out, 60 billion was actually used for building related purposes. Now, these things are not renewable. So sand takes millions of years to fall, wow. as does clay, gravel. So they're not renewable in that sense, whereas trees are, you know, you can grow trees, et cetera. So my thing is, if you start with materials, thinking we're rapidly running out of um, you know, we're running out of rare metals, we're running out of sand even. What can we do as architects? You know, people are sort of saying, oh, let's use electric cars, let's, let's use solar panels. But all those need rare uh, minerals um, and metals to actually uh, manufacture those. So, and we're not very good at extracting them. So once these solar panels and eyefalls, et cetera, are thrown, we, we, we're not able to extract the rare metals from them, you know. So that's like really a, a very sad situation to be in where we are just taking and taking and give nothing back to the planet. So we need to think about what kind of buildings we are producing, what are they made of. And of course, you know, if you're making things out of trees, that's really great because 
um, you know, trees also absorb carbon. And I mean, the more stuff you take out of the Earth's crust, the more carbon you generate mm. in whatever way, you know, even through transport, the transportation of that material, uh, through extraction, etc. So you're adding to the carbon burden that's already there on the planet. So architects and architectural students should be thinking about what materials they're using. And if they think about materials, then naturally you're going to reduce the carbon they Mm, nice. Very well. Thank you. That's really good to share. Now, I always find that podcasts, it can be one way, right? And because I'm technically the host and I'm, I'm asking you questions, but I'd love this to be a dialogue. And I, maybe I asked a lot of questions at the start because I'm excited to have you here. But while you're here, I'd love for you, is there any questions or thoughts you have at the moment? I know I work a lot on architectural recruitment with students getting jobs and architects. Do you have any, a few questions to ask me or one or two on, on the top of your, of your. Yeah, no, that, that's actually a great question because, um, one, one book I wrote is called Autotelic Architect. And it's about how different, how many different ways you can practice architecture. And so actually looking at you, you're running architecture social. To me, when you're not actually building buildings, you're actually practicing architecture, mm. if that makes sense. Yeah. So I'd like to know from you, how did you, is I, yeah. How uh, did you yeah, start? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, good question. Yeah, good question. And I'll be very truthful in the answer. So I, I worked in an architecture practice, EPR architects. They were very, very good to me. But I didn't have maybe the same passion that some of my other part twos had for certain aspects of architecture. I, I Technical details, you know, I would be next to my colleague and they would love it and they would go into it and find out all that information. And my passion wasn't in that so much, but I loved architects. I loved people and I didn't know what to do at first. So I kind of fell into recruitment because when you, no one grows up and goes, mum, mum and dad, I want to be a recruiter. No one does it. And it's a very unglamorous role. But a lot of what architecture is, is hard graft. There's a lot of hard stuff behind the buildings, right? And it's about relationships and it's about learning and, um, there were things in recruitment that with the architect side of design eye, which I felt didn't quite work. Stuff like, for instance, the way recruitment's done is that big companies pay for individual roles. They might pay for a search for a bid manager or something. And then you get a lovely architecture student that comes along. And due to the nature of recruitment, you couldn't really give enough time and love that you'd love to do to impart all this wisdom because you might get sacked in this um, sales environment. So the architecture social to me, now I run it, is kind of all the bits that I wanted to do. And, and when I was on furlough, I thought, right, I need to start building up this place where people can talk about whatever they want. And, and anyone knows, as you know, in architecture, probably that was too wide and I had to bring it down. I was like, right, what, what do I know or what can I do during the pandemic? And, and that was really talking about helping people get jobs, not just architects even, but uh, architecture students, but architects as well, or anyone that's been made redundant. And I kind of talking it through and my, my goal then was to build this compository up that 
it was a wealth of information that in the future, when they speak to a part two, I could say, here's a few tidbits, but have a look at all of this information to help them. And, and because it, sometimes in university, it felt like you could get some universities do a really good job at like um, helping students get into the industry, but others are there's like, hey, well done, you've graduated, shake your hand, get the certificate. And you go out into the big world and you, you, don't, know where, you don't know where to go. Uh, and there's a lot in between there. And it's very difficult finding a job for everyone. And it's a very stressful time. So that was my brief. So if I had a brief like an architect, it would be to make ju the job search less stressful. And, and, and that's really my approach. But I appreciate that. And I always say to people, that you can, it's the stuff I learned in part two. When I design my website or when, the way I work, it, you never lose that thing in you. And, and I've, I agree, there's often different ways to do architecture. And the last bit I would add to that is sometimes I, I speak to people and I encourage people to keep going in architecture and you can do different routes, but you can add to the architecture scene in different ways, you know, whereas architectural journalism or design or interior design and then architecture, or there's just so much you can do. One of my um, part two uh, colleagues and um, one of my closest friends here in university, he doesn't do architecture anymore, but he learned um, architecture. He made all these models of monsters. And now he has like a YouTube channel with a million subscribers, but he actively designs the, the films and the, 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 the monsters. And he's made a livelihood out of it. And he would have never done that if he didn't study architecture. So uh, yeah, thank I, I, I think there's lots of ways you can do it, but you're right. I still, um, and the other thing is I still sometimes have to tell myself not to work the long hours. Like we all have that thing in us. We have to be respectful of our time. And that's what my current bits of me that I'm learning at the moment, because I'm running my own business. And as you know, because you run your own businesses, trying to get that work-life balance can be difficult, but getting there slowly. And the other, the other thing is what I tell people is that apart from different ways of doing architecture, if you actually diversify your income, then you're not dependent on one thing. So, you know, when something didn't work out for me, because I, Brexit has been mm. hard for me. COVID was hard for me. I thought, well, that's the end of my architectural design. But then I got so much work, you know, lecturing online uh, and, and, and other things, writing stuff. I did something like 21 or 24 uh, podcasts or lectures in that first, you know, 2020, that year. Um, I was doing two every month, something like that. I never imagined that that would become a way of earning money. So I always tell people that, you know, in hard times, just diversify your income so you're not depending on one thing. And, and this, this system of doing architecture in different ways, we need to be more respectful of it. Like I've heard people say, oh, well, they're not doing real architecture. You know, they're doing community engagement or they're doing this and that and the other. I'm saying, hang on, they're still working in the built environment right? They're still doing architecture. So we're not respectful of 
people who practice different ways of architecture. We think there's just one way to do it. And that kind of respect has to come into the profession. Well said. I think, I think that's a quite an, an important note. And I think that there are lots of ways to go about it. And as well, there's lots of ways. Some people I see in the industry can, can do a max, add massive value, can be a director of a company and still technically on paper be a part one. They can be qualified if that's their prerogative or, or as you say, there's so much ways that we can add to the architecture um, scene and, you know, getting involved, as you say, in, as I think is the first step. And that's what I would encourage people to do is because I was quite nervous at first about joining the RABA council. I didn't know what to expect or getting involved in certain groups, but you kind of have to go a bit out of your comfort zone and you learn from it. And in my experience, joining stuff, I'm sure as well, when you you founded Arctics for, um, for Change and you've been involved in the Equality Forum at first, you, you know, you, it can be a little bit of a nervous thing, but then over time you meet people, you get involved and you can make a difference. And that's what I try to encourage people is that just getting out there. And, and the last bit I would add is like, even now we're recording a podcast before this, I never done a podcast. I never done live streams and all this stuff. And it's easy now when I've done a hundred of them, but at first I was very, very nervous. And, and I remember the first podcast I ever did, it was like you said, like us now, it was one-on-one -on -one conversations and it was a little bit scary or even now that because there's a slight delay and that's fine. We'll edit it out, but you know, we're just having an honest conversation, not letting things get in the way. And then that's fine, isn't it? Things don't have to be perfect as well. And that's the last bit I would say on is that sometimes I remember some of my fellow students, perfection. And I'm like, it's always learning. We're always learning and things don't have to be overly polished. I mean, you can just, if, if an honest conversation, I think above everything else is the best or honest work, honest architecture and so forth, just doing what you can and putting yourself out there generally lends itself quite well. Um, but I mean, do you have any final thoughts, Amita, on that or anything we talked about before we kind of wind up oh, this I mean, I'm conversation? I'm impressed with what you're doing, your enthusiasm that you bring uh, to architecture, you know, through architecture social. And I've actually said this to people. Um, that, you know, there should be uh. more young people doing what you're doing because we need, we need that. You know, sometimes people like us, we get old, we're not doing things the right way. We need a bit of fresh injection, you know, the tell us how to do things properly or more, um, you know, in the, in the sort of wider context or which is, uh, you know, relevant to the time, you know, what we did we did 30 years ago is probably uh, not the way to do things. So I think younger people bring that fresh, those fresh ideas uh, to architecture. It's very important to listen to them. Um, people, uh, international students, the topic that we started with, they bring really great ideas. You know, I've learned so much from actually talking to my international students. For example, I didn't know that uh, the word architect mm. is genderized in many languages. 
And I had asked them to explore this topic called a woman architect, whether mm-hmm. that should be a relevant thing or not, whether being or whether they should be called architects or whether female architects should be called women architects. And then I learned to my surprise that the Chinese have a different way of saying this, um, or, you know, female architect, woman architect. The Italians have different words, architetta and architetto. They actually get their certificates into, you know, differentiation of two sexes. Then I said, well, what about different genders? What happens if you're of a different gender? They have no answer. And, and so how people are practicing architecture, whether they're good things or bad things, I think international students bring us that awareness because it's, you know, we tend to think we, we, we live in the UK and we think, okay, that's, that's our world, but there's so much else happening outside the UK. And we need to kind of think of architecture in a more sort of global sense. So it's great that, you know, your podcasts are on YouTube and people can hear them and learn from them. So I think that's, that's great. You know, I say bring, bring fresh ideas to architecture. I absolutely agree with you. And I tell you what, it's all about being connected in that way. And so if anyone wants to get in touch, uh, what is the best way that people can find you to start a conversation? I am on Instagram and LinkedIn. You can find me in those three places. So do get in touch. Perfect. Thank you so much, Samita. You've been an absolute star. One day you can tell me how to get that OBE. I'm not surprised you've got it with all the amazing trailblazing stuff you've done. Of course, equality, diversity, inclusivity, and sustainability, amongst other things that I'm sure um, along the journey. So thank you so much for being in the conversation. I'm going to end um, the, the interview in a second. Thank you so much for everyone that's tuned in and get in touch with me. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye now.